Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Small business owners still trying to apply for forgivable loans are being turned away because the government's Paycheck Protection Program is out of money. Now, with the $350 billion exhausted, the push to add another $250 billion is stalled in Congress. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here today with Ezra Klein. And we wanted to talk about some of the uh, implementation snags that are happening in Congress's fiscal stimulus efforts. Um, And I guess we are here recording on Thursday, April 16th, which is officially the day that the uh, small business lending fund that Congress created ran out of money. Um, It didn't last very long. And some of that is just like, they didn't put enough money into it. They say they're ongoing negotiations about putting some more in. But there also appear to have been actually a lot of problems with the program itself. And it has not been as easy for businesses to access or necessarily gone to the to the places that need it the most. And that, I think, sets the stage for sort of all the problems we're looking at here. I am personally a little confused about the way in which it has run out of money. Just to give a little quick backup on this program, it's $350 billion was the first tranche of money, roughly, which is a lot of money, um, just to, to be clear, maybe not as much as it needed, but it's a lot of money. The program is, in theory, administered by the Small Business Administration, but because that is not a very strong federal agency and definitely not capable of absorbing the amount of incoming business loan requests this program is going to get, they outsourced it to banks. Um, And the idea is banks are out there, they have branches, they can sort of restructure themselves to administer this program. But what you heard from almost everybody applying was that 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 was proving almost impossible. And banks were uh, prioritizing the customers who already had big loans with them. And meanwhile, the program is really only accessible to small businesses that use a lot of their money in payroll. Um, It's really for like 75% in payroll or above is really what they want for you to access this program well. So there's all that going on in the background and you're hearing a lot of problems. So two things seem to be happening simultaneously. One is all the money's gone, but two is that a huge amount of the 
businesses who were told they were going to get money haven't gotten it. And a lot of others haven't even been able to apply for it. So it's a little unclear to me if the money is getting trapped in the banks somewhere. Um, and that's part of why the money has gone from the federal level of this, but it's not actually been fully dispersed or somebody demand is so high that it has all been dispersed and it just is not nearly enough. Do you have a better read on that than I do? Well, so, yeah, I mean, there's two things, right? I mean, one is the the amount of funds available were just not sort of equal to the, well, I'm saying equal to the need, but also it, it is a very generous program, right? It was quantitatively limited in how much money there is. But if you qualify for one of these loans, I, as we discussed uh, on an earlier episode, the, the terms are extremely generous uh, because in effect, you know, if you if you spend the money on continuing to pay your staff, you're able to basically walk away from the loan with with minimal consequences. Uh, so this is money, you know, you really you really want if you're a small business and you're sort of losing out. Oftentimes in life, we have programs that have limited resources, and then we need to come up with some kind of way to prioritize them. One way you could do that is trying to identify the most worthy cases. They, they didn't do that here. Uh, another way is you could try to hand out the money randomly. They didn't do that here either. Instead, by sort of saying, the government is going to backstop loans that banks make to qualifying entities. In essence, they prioritized businesses that had an easy time getting approval from a bank, which means that the bank needs to feel confident that you really qualify for the loan because there's no risk to the bank. The federal government guarantees it, but the bank is accepting a certain amount of fraud risk, right? If they lend me the money, well, it turns out like I'm not a small business owner. And so they have a problem there. So if I were to just walk through the door of a bank and say, hey, I've got a small business, they would want me to you know, prove that that's true, prove that I really qualify. So in practice, what the banks want to do is give these loans to small businesses that they already have an existing lending relationship with. Because if the bank has already lent your business money, they have all the paperwork on you, they know all about you, and they can verify you easily and, and with low risk. But it means, in effect, that what Congress did was they came up with a program that doesn't give money to the small businesses that have the most objective need. It gives money to small businesses that have the strongest existing relationships with banks that happen to have decided they want to participate in the program. And we're going to have to see what that sort of amounts to in the end. But I think the concern is that a lot of what it's going to mean is franchises of big national fast food chains, because they will have the sort of logistical infrastructure in place to get this done. Do you have a sense, though, if the exhaustion of the $350 billion, or I think it's $349 technically, means that $349 billion has now moved into the bank accounts of small businesses? Or yeah. it's like more caught up in like a loan that the bank wants to give and the government has now like agreed to backstop it, but the loan maybe hasn't gone out. Like There, there is a lot of people, and I'm hearing from them every day who say either I, I'm trying to apply and I can't. That's happening all over the place. But also said, I applied and I'm supposed to have the money, but I don't. Right. One thing for that is I think some people are saying, well, if I meet the qualifying criteria, that means I'm, quote unquote, supposed to have the money, right? And, and this is something, you know, business owners may not be accustomed to exactly, right? But like, as you know, in our in our welfare state, we have two kinds of programs. We have entitlement programs where if you meet the criteria, you get the money. 
And then we have programs like Section 8 housing vouchers, where you need to meet the criteria, but then you also need to get lucky to actually get in on it. And more affluent people, I think, are not used to dealing with government programs that don't have an entitlement-type structure, right? Like, if you qualify for the home mortgage interest deduction or the charitable tax deduction or Social Security or Medicare, you just get it. And if there's some kind of holdup, it's a paperwork error. But this program for small businesses is structured more like the way we do some of our programs for low-income people, which is just because you qualify for the money, just because you apply, just because you did everything right, it doesn't mean you're necessarily going to get the money. There's this prioritization structure. So uh, my understanding is that the money is, in fact, flowing out to small businesses. It's just that it's not flowing out to everyone who qualifies because the budget isn't big enough. And the first come first serve structure has not targeted the people who are in the most need. And so then there's this, yeah, there's a second problem. And this will come up as they're trying to figure out how to either give more money. And we should say there's a fight in Congress right now where Republicans want what's called a clean bill to give more money, right? Just a a bill that fills the same program with more cash. And Democrats have also want to give this program more money, but want to use the the, the opportunity of passing another bill to also give more money to hospitals, um, to state and local governments, uh, possibly do some other things. And so there's a fight right now in Congress about how to reauthorize this, whether through a clean bill or a bigger bill where Democrats are trying to use some leverage to, to – it's an interesting reversion or inversion, I'm sorry, of stimulus dynamics from 2010 where what you had then was Democrats held the White House and so like in theory had responsibility for how the economy was going. And so what they wanted was more stimulus and Republicans were holding those bills up because what they wanted was no stimulus or less. And now what you have is Republicans hold the White House. So it is their responsibility for how they're responsible for how the economy is going. And Democrats are holding up the stimulus bills, but not because they want less or none, but still because they want more and bigger and for more of the money to say go to these underserved um, banks or, or, or communities that uh, have less of a relationship with the commercial banking sector. It's an, it's an interesting dynamic, but it's also part of why it's being hard to get more money because it is being used as a uh, cudgel for some other things. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a little hard to understand uh, on some level why the Trump administration isn't stepping in to just say, like, look, we're going to give Democrats what they want because, like, what's like what's the downside to them? Like, hospitals end up with too much money. Who who cares? So it's interesting on both sides, right? I mean, Democrats are trying to to use leverage, and then Republicans have decided they want to join this political fight. You know, like they don't they don't want to give in. They want to they want to fight about this and say the Democrats are wasting too much money or or hurting small business with their demands uh, for more money for for state governments and, and hospitals, which I mean, I think the reason Democrats decided to use leverage on this point is that they felt Republicans would give in which is also what I would have predicted. But it turns out it's sometimes hard to forecast what other people are going to do in a negotiation. Well, and it, and it may still happen where, you know, this is only running out of money today. But there's, I think, a bunch of big, interesting dynamics in here. But to focus in on a weedsy one, all of this, and we're going to talk about this in the unemployment insurance context too, uh, recall some things that happened in the stimulus too, where you had these programs that had a bunch of money in them or had, at least in theory, the capacity for a bunch of money in them, but they were really, really screwed up by administration and how that money went out the door. 
Now, something you're seeing in this one is that pretty that 350 billion has gone out the door that quickly. Like that's pretty impressive, and the sometimes difficulty it seemed that. Uh, Democrats like had imagining a stimulus where you could just like spend the money easily. It looks very odd from that uh, from that perspective. But the thing that is happening here, which I do think is really important and very much happened to the housing money uh, around the stimulus uh, in 2009, 2010, is the concern that the money will be seen as having gone out fraudulently to a small business it isn't a small business in other programs to a big business that ended up doing something bad with the money or closed anyway is creating a lot of distortion in it like what you want to do is get the money out the door as quickly as possible and to quite vulnerable businesses but by that very nature moving it quickly means you can't do that much oversight on it um and vulnerable businesses maybe just have worse relationships in a systematic way with the banking system and so you're missing a lot of them and so money that was supposed to be there to help doesn't go out there you saw this very much in things like the harp program for housing where there was money there to use and some of this just goes to the obama administration not using authorities aggressively as you should have but they got really caught up on this idea of preventing fraud because they were very worried about the politics of like the wrong people, homeowners, et cetera, getting the money, and then Republicans would attack them and so on. And I do think you're seeing some of that same thing here. And one one place where I think I probably disagree a bit with the Democrats is they've been they're very focused. And I get why they are, but on watchdogs and and so on. You did a great interview, Matt, on, on the weeds uh, last week or maybe earlier this week with the one of the folks who's leading the the watchdog of the bigger business loans in, in, in the stimulus. And I was a, I was a little bit glad to hear that his position was largely powerless <laughs> because I think it's like I think you want to get the money out. And if some of the wrong players get the money, like so be it, assuming at least it's not, you know, just Donald Trump's personal businesses and buddies. And and I guess we'll see. But pardon the small business side, if anything, I still think there's too much scrutiny still. And routing the banking system just means that if you were a business that was not taking out loans or couldn't take out loans or like didn't have the relationships, you're not getting it. So there's always this tension between how much you do oversight and make sure you're like keeping watch on the money and how quickly the money can get out can get out into whom and i'm not sure they're falling on the right side of it right now there's also a number of sort of arbitrary cutoff points here right which is like one is to qualify for this money you have to have fewer than 500 employees which you know i mean okay it's a small business people feel sentimental about small businesses but obviously a business with 498 employees and a business with 503 employees they don't like operate in different universes right like those are two very similar businesses I mean, there's supposed to be a program for mid-sized businesses, but it's a completely different sort of treatment. Uh, the other thing is that to try to emphasize that this is about protecting people's jobs, the requirement is that 75% of the money needs to go to payroll. And I can see in some conference room somewhere why that seemed like the right way to structure it. But you could have a business who, you know, they have high rent, right? You are operating a, a restaurants have been sort of the canonical small business that people think about here. But if you have a relatively new restaurant, you probably have a lot of interest on loans. That's how you launch the restaurant. You also have to pay rent to the person who owns the, the building. And if those expenses are a large fraction of your business, you're going to go out of business and people are going to lose their jobs, right? Saying, well, the money has to go to cover payrolls rather than to cover other expenses, it, it doesn't really add up because if you can't pay the rent, 
you have to lay off your whole staff anyway. And it would actually be better to lay off 10% of your staff, but keep paying the rent and keep the other 90% on than to have the whole business go belly up, right? So it's one problem that I think you always get into with sort of targeting mania, which is that it's hard on a really, really fast timescale to design targets that actually hit the goals you want to hit. And you see this in the individual checks, right, where they wound up deciding that the sort of $1,200 checks needed to be means tested so they wouldn't go to people who, quote unquote, don't need the assistance. But the only records they had were people's 2018 income tax returns. But your 2018 income tax return has very little to do with your financial circumstances right now. You know, like dentists make a lot of money normally, but their whole businesses are completely shut off. And so now they don't get stimulus money on the theory that they have high incomes, but that high income ended 18 months ago. So you you, you see a lot of that kind of thing in the program design. But it really does on some level all come back to the fact that, like, there's only so much money to go around, you know, like, even with all the limitations on who was eligible for this small business money, they ran out of money really fast. And I think on some level, what they need is just more money. I think that's probably right. But I, I do want to see it open up. I mean, I guess a counter argument, and I've heard this from a number of economists, is that you want to be directing this money to the businesses with the best chance of survival. And that's a little tricky because on the one hand, then you might pull in a bunch of businesses that don't really need the money. And I mean, that seems wasteful to people. And on the other hand, um, I get why you don't want to waste money on businesses that are not going to survive this one way or the other. But also given the alternatives, people are going to go on UI. So you're going to be backing up that payroll anyway. I'm not sure how big of a difference there is here, really. Yeah. I mean, Congress works in mysterious ways, right? And so they they divvied this up into a few different pots. And they decided, well, we're going to have some money to enhance unemployment insurance. We're going to have some money for uh, business support. And then we're going to divide that between big businesses, medium businesses, small businesses. We're going to do this, that, and the other thing. And they didn't totally think about the interactions between this stuff, right? So the unemployment insurance program is designed to be very generous. And that does have an entitlement structure. There's a cost estimate for UI, but however many people are eligible, they all get the money. And so given that they made unemployment insurance more generous, the cost of keeping people on the job is quite a bit lower than it would be under ordinary times. Because if you are paying a business owner to keep me on payroll, that costs money. But if he lays me off, and then I apply for unemployment insurance, and then I get enhanced benefits, that also costs the federal government money. So, I mean, you have to do the math, right? But in some cases, it's actually quite a bit cheaper for the government to keep people employed than to pay them unemployment insurance benefits. And I feel like when they were designing the the business loan programs, they didn't think about that. It's not obvious that you actually save any money at all by being sort of stingy, particularly with low-paid retail and, and food service workers. And I just don't – as far as I know, those two provisions were just negotiated on completely separate tracks, and I don't know that they realized how they were going to interact when, when they put it together. But, I mean, I would definitely say that, like, when they come back – I mean – Republicans have asked for a clean bill with more money for this thing, but they haven't asked for enough money, in in my opinion. Like, they should just, just, like, all the money should go into this, because not only is people losing their jobs terrible, 
But the money winds up getting spent anyway. I think that's probably a good place to take a break. And then let's talk about what's going on with unemployment insurance. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So part of the big Economic Support Act was this huge unemployment insurance expansion. And in a weedsy way, I really do want to give a shout out here to the um, offices of Senator Ron Wyden from Oregon and Senator Michael Bennett from Colorado, because they negotiated into this, as I understand it, this $600 boost for lower income workers, which is, I think, one of the most important pieces of economic support policy in many, many years and has made this a lot easier on people than it otherwise would have been. But a little bit like the way the small business loan program is being done by the banks, this is being done by the states. And so the quality and the ease with which you can apply for unemployment insurance really depends on what a state has been doing for some time now. And so there are states that have worked hard over years to make it easy to apply for UI. Right. They believe that like the point of like that part of the government is if you lose your job, you should be able to get UI and they want to make it as easy as possible. And then there are states that have the exact opposite view. Um, Florida, for instance, is one of them. There's a great political article about a week ago talking about how under um, the previous governor, who was a Republican, they constructed UI to be really hard to access because the idea was it went to these, you know, undeserving poor, right? You wanted you wanted it to be only the people who really needed it. And the way you show you really need it is to go through these horrible, endless hoops when you already are trying to feed your children and look for a new job and everything else. It's unbelievably cruel, even in normal times. But now Florida's freaking out because when they made UI really hard for people to access, it turned out that Republicans in Florida were people 
also. <laughs> and they were going to need UI, you know, a couple years later. And so now the system is in a really, really bad shape. In addition to that, verification of income and everything, it's really, really difficult if you put a lot of paperwork on top of it to get the stuff going out the door quickly enough. I mean, it's not like every state staffed up its UI office and rebuilt its entire UI uh, application architecture in anticipation of a surge bigger than anything we've seen since the Great Depression. I mean, on top of all that, a lot of these UI programs, they actually run on COBOL, which is a basically, I don't want to exactly call it an obscure programming language, but it is an older programming language, which relatively few people program in now. And so what is built on top of it is buggier. It is crashing. I mean, the stories of people just trying for days and days and days, hours and hours and hours to try to get the UI site to load and not crash. And then it crashes right when they're at the end of the application. It's horrifying. So what you have is a UI program that is really, really importantly well-designed on some level. But in terms of who is going to administer it, it is varying dramatically by state and particularly in states that have spent years trying to make benefits hard to access, it's now very, very, very hard to access. Yeah, I mean, it's worth, you know, describing some of the the sort of landscape here. One is that the the scale at which people are claiming benefits is completely un precedented, right? So the previous sort of biggest week for unemployment initial claims was back in 1982. Um, it, this is often reported as 700,000 people filed claims. That's a seasonally adjusted number. The real number was higher. It was about a million in raw terms. But we had one week of over 3 million. We had two weeks of over 6 million. And now we just had one week of over 5 million. So this is a process where th there is actual human verification of unemployment insurance claims is the way it works in most states. And you are having just a, you know, it's like a four sigma event week after week after week. And nobody is staffed to process this many claims this quickly. It was not envisioned at all. Um, and then you have this, this technical debt issue, which is that state governments, they need to balance their budgets every year. And governors and state legislators, they'd like to put money into things that people will see benefits for, right? Like if you open a new highway interchange, you can say, aha. Or if you give your teachers a raise, you know, then like you could get an endorsement. Or if you do a property tax cut. People will be happy that you cut their taxes to say, I am going to hire a consulting company to write us a whole new parallel unemployment insurance scheme that's written in a modern programming language so that in case the system breaks in a hypothetical future surge of claims, we will be written with up-to-date code with no technical debt that we can easily modify. Like, that's just not a not a winner. You know, that's not a, that, that's not the kind of thing that that sounds like a good idea to politicians. So they've accumulated this incredible amount of technical debt. Then on top of that, Congress decided to greatly expand the number of people who are eligible for the program. Right. They wanted to help freelancers, gig economy people, a bunch of stuff that I think progressives have like thought abstractly for a long time we ought to do. They sort of put into this emergency measure, which is a good idea. It's, it's helped a lot of people. But normally, you would give states a lot of lead time on something like that to, like, work it out. Like, how are freelancers going to apply? But instead, they've been told to just, like, do everything fast, 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 fast. And what you're seeing in so many cases is that they can't actually do it. And we really don't yet have a great sense of how many people are 
getting their unemployment insurance money. And that's a problem. I mean, it's a problem because pe- people need it to get by. But also when you're talking about the economy, right, if people lose their jobs and their income falls off a cliff, then they can't spend any money and then nobody else has income. And and we seem to be seeing a lot of sort of secondary economic damage happening uh, in the retail sales numbers that, you know, uh, things that are for sale, people are not buying, um, which is understandable because millions of people are losing their jobs every week. So like, of course, they're not like, you know, shopping for chairs. Yeah, it's a bad situation. And and that one, I'm not sure Congress knows how to fix. I mean, we might just be in a lag period, but it isn't simply that they can like cut the requirements because you still have to be able to apply on your state UI office. So like, it may just take a couple weeks till this all gets up and running. But I, I do want to note as like a very big picture thing here that one thing we are seeing is that the way the safety net is administered in this country, particularly the parts of the safety net administered state by state, there's often a lot of cruelty in it. There is a lot. We make people jump through tremendously high levels of paperwork and you know testing, and they have to show that they're doing this or that, and they have to come in and fax this form and triplicate. There's a bunch of things here for UI where people have to fax something in, but if you don't have a fax machine, where do you go to use one right now? Like Kinko's is not open. And these things were done consciously. They were done to humiliate and dissuade poor people, unemployed people from using these programs. They were done by governments. They were told by the federal government to execute like a social safety net when they didn't want to or they didn't want to at that level. And so they tried to make it hard to access. And right now, what you're seeing is people who were not meant to get caught up in that like incredibly cruel dragnet of humiliation are getting caught up in it. And so now they're upset and they have the political power to be heard. But this pro like they are getting a taste, like millions and millions of people are getting a taste of how we treat poor people in this country every single day. Like how we've been doing it for years and often much worse, right? And when they complain, nobody cares. And I, I I should plug the Weeds episode where uh, we have Don Moynihan and Pam Hurd on talking about their book, Administrative Burden, uh, which uh, discusses this sort of general phenomenon. I think they've also done uh, a good sort of op-ed, you know, bringing their research work into this this crisis in the way that, that Ezra was talking about there. But yeah, I mean, you know, the point you'll see if you if you listen to that episode or read their book, but it's it's really much better to listen to podcasts than read books, except for me and Ezra's books, is that, you know, this is a quite general aspect, particularly of state government in the United States, is that they sort of want to give people help only if they absolutely have to, right? There's an idea of like type one versus type two errors, and I can never remember which one is which, but we choose, I mean, particularly in the more conservative states, to always err on the side of not helping people who need help rather than letting like any one person who doesn't really need it kind of slip through the cracks. And it comes to bite us when there's a big national emergency. And it's not just a a question of charity. I I mean, although it is that, but it's like the economy needs money to continue to flow, even though many businesses are shut down or many people don't want to patronize certain kinds of businesses. And that requires like stabilizing national income. And the only way to do that is to hand money out relatively freely. And we're just not set up 
to do that as a country. It's not our political culture and it's not how our institutions work critically. I mean, the whole reason so much of this money flows through UI in the first place is that that is a program that like exists, whereas a lot of other things don't. But it it's administered in a very patchwork way. And, you know, in particular, it's just not not set up to be sort of user friendly. And that's by design rather than failure. I want to talk about some ways to fix it. But before we do, I want to mention, so some of this is being administered federally, in particular, the new $1,200 stimulus check program. But those checks are now being delayed because Trump wants to make sure that every single one of them bears his personal signature. Not that he is going to sign them individually, but um, in a way that has not been done before, when the government has sent you money, uh, it's going to be like, this is a check, like not from the US government or the treasury, but from Donald J. Trump to you, which I guess on some level, like that's politics. And in the stimulus, they had these not very effective, you know, little signs that said, this is brought to you by the American Recovery Act. But to delay the check so he can put his name on them and get political benefit of it, it's just it's also perverse. And the fact that he might get political benefit from doing that is very perverse. Again, I don't think this is like outside the the rules of politics. So I'm not gonna like pound the table over it, but like people are hurting because he wants to put his name on more stuff. Well, I I actually think though, the idea that people would forget that Donald Trump is president if his name wasn't on the check seemed a little bit a little bit odd to me. I mean, because I do recall an actual partisan difference is that when George W. Bush was president and they did a kind of stimulus program that it was different from this direct crash dance, but it it was meant to be a broad disbursement of money to people. Uh, So he wanted to like make a big show of the fact that you were getting a check and this was your stimulus check. He didn't put his name on it because I think he felt and his critics also felt that it was obvious that he was the president. Right. And that like anything that was like, here's money from the government, people were not going to forget it was him. Then when Obama was president, they had this like cockamamie theory that Cass Sunstein, I guess, came up with that it would be better to try to trick people into not realizing that they were getting stimulus money. So it was designed to all happen through uh, payroll withholding. But like that was considered the boundaries of like crassness versus classy policymaking. The idea that like you would have to like write on it, like I'm Donald Trump, I'm the president. It's just like everybody knows he's the president. I think it typifies some of Trump's lack of thinking clearly about this whole crisis, which is that, you know, public relations is an important part of politics. But like far and away, the best thing he could do to secure his reelection at this point is to have the country be healthy and prosperous this fall, at which point he could do a lot of rallies and TV ads where he's like, man, everyone's doing really well. The strong economy, the strong labor market that existed before this hit, like that was really good for Trump, you know, just like substantively. Um, He didn't need to like sign things. And the, the focus on pure PR stuff here is like, it's not a good way to think about the problem if you're Donald Trump. And I, I wish he would reconsider. Let me make an argument here from both directions, which is one, I I disagree with what you're saying there in terms of like the crude versus classy and people know Donald Trump is the president. I think something Donald Trump has always been good at in his career is recognizing that there is a margin that other people will not go to because they feel it would look crude. It would look gauche. They would be criticized. The media would call them a name. And so like he will go there, right? Like he will seem like like the 
caricature of a rich guy because he wants people to know he's a rich guy. Whereas like a lot of other rich guys like try to dress down, not up. They try to have a um, more modest styling of their home rather than making their toilet painted in gold or covered in gold or whatever the hell is happening with this toilet. And what Trump has always understood actually is that being unbelievably crude and obvious is actually helpful in establishing a sense of yourself as an, as an archetype and as an icon. And the Bush checks, which I agree were more obvious than the Obama sort of weird behavioral economics stimulus nudge. I think it is broadly a correct idea that like literally signing your name on the checks will help establish in people's minds that you did this, that you were doing something, that when you're doing that like press conference every day, that, oh, and now you get this check and it's from Donald Trump, like not the government, not the Congress. The flip side of it, which I think goes to your second point, which I do think is correct, is that what this also does is it ties Trump more decisively to the response. And so if what people feel is the economy collapsed and all I got is this lousy $1,200 check, the fact that his name is on it, the fact that he's doing so much to own it actually goes to show that he owns response. He can't say like, oh, that was Congress's idea. Like I couldn't get what I wanted from them. Like put put your name on it, dude. And so there is a like it is Nevertheless, like continuously true that the best thing he could do is like actually have all this work, which he doesn't seem in any way to even have a view of what it would mean for it to work. A very striking thing to me about Donald Trump in this is that I am a person and know a lot of people who are like involved in trying to think about this response. And like everybody I know is obsessively trying to think about like what the end game is here and how do you get to it. And he does not, to me, in any way appear to have a theory of that, be it a public health theory, an economic theory, like anything. Like he wants it to end and he thinks it is somebody else's job as far as I can tell to end it. And the fact that he does not like seem to know what the ideal outcome would be that he can't get Congress to do is really very striking to me. But so putting his name on everything, I think is like the one way it could really backfire. Like if those checks are popular, it will be good for him to have his name on them and they will probably be popular in the first instance. But if they like if the overall responses seem to be lacking, the degree to which he tries to preside over it, despite actually not being that involved in its construction, he's like presiding over something he doesn't really understand and on some level may not even truly support if he did understand it. And like that may not be a good idea. Yeah, I mean, it is also worth clarifying that in most cases, people are not going to be getting these checks from the government at all. Uh, so most people will get their money through an existing direct deposit relationship that they have with the IRS um, or possibly some other government agencies. Uh, if you get like uh, SSI or, or something like that through, through direct deposit. So the, the checks are a little bit of a of an edge case. This may not be what's actually happening to you uh, if you pay your taxes uh, w w or get your refunds with the direct deposit. But it, I mean, it, it does speak to Trump's sort of lack of comprehensive engagement with this. Although I also wonder about Congress, like everything that they did here, I don't understand why it is limited in the way that it is, you know, and and in particular, the, the, the $1,200 check. So first they means tested it out of a fear that I don't know, a rich person might get $1,200, but who cares? They also, kids get less than $1,200, which I also, like, I, I don't know why. Uh, it holds down the overall cost, but also it's a one-time check rather than a stimulus program that goes forward for the for the duration of, of the crisis. And I think that's probably a good time to, to take a break and talk about automatic stabilizers. 
Support for The Weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Automatic stabilizers is an idea that like exists in macroeconomics, and it normally refers to the fact that because there's a progressive income tax and because there's a welfare state, when the economy goes into a downturn, you get a certain amount of automatic stimulus. More people go on food stamps, people pay lower taxes, more people get Medicaid benefits rather than private insurance, and that sort of helps stabilize the economy. And then one thing we say about the United States versus Europe is that because we have a smaller welfare state and lower taxes, we get less automatic stabilization um, and need more sort of one-off fiscal stimulus to sort of help keep things going. And there have been proposals kicking around. I did two interviews on the weeds with people who wrote chapters for the Hamilton Project's report, which they called Recession Ready, which was about uh, bolstering automatic stabilizers in the United States. And You know, I I was not optimistic that Congress would do that just for no kind of reason, because legislators tend not to uh, act in anticipation of hypothetical problems. But I had kind of hoped that, like, once this crisis hit, that they would write some automatic stuff into their fiscal response. And they just haven't done that. And it's it's bad, both because I think over the summer, people are going to need a lot more help 
than Congress has appropriated, but also because Republicans have this kind of uh, unfortunate habit of changing their mind about budget deficits very, very sharply based on who is in the White House. And it's very likely that a Biden administration is not going to be able to get any Republican support for additional measures if it's needed. So like now is the time for Democrats to safeguard a potential 2021 recovery. But it's also the time for Republicans to make sure that like in the fall, if more people need more money, they get more money. Yeah, this to me is a, a strange dimension of it because there was willingness from Democrats to do this. If you look at that Brown Bennett Booker bill that was to me the best of the different, you know, basic income kind of economic support bills that had triggers in it. And they were, I believe they were unemployment triggers. And so Democrats, I think, are open to doing this. Republicans should very much want them to do this. So you're seeing right now for Republicans, they're having trouble getting this small business fund um, replenished because Democrats want other things. And Democrats are being very careful right now. The other things they want are very popular things to want, money for hospitals, money for state governments. So it's not obvious to me who will win the showdown that's coming here. But as time goes on and Donald Trump becomes less popular, and I should note, because I do think it's important for the political dynamics, a couple of weeks ago, we were saying like, oh, Donald Trump at his highest ever rating in Gallup. And doesn't that just show that what he's doing on coronavirus is working? And, and I was saying, like, wait, like, give this, a, like, let the reality catch up um, with the polling here or vice versa, actually. And sure enough, like here today, he's at his lowest number in a long time, 43% with 54% disapproval. And I think it's only going to continue getting worse. So Republicans are going to be losing political capital very rapidly as Donald Trump gets less popular, as the election gets closer, um, as Democrats become more focused on that. Like if they want to have any chance of not having a lot of stimulus fights blow up into this, like Democrats imposing high level conditions that, yes, would be more stimulus, but Republicans for various ideological reasons don't seem to want to give into. Like now is the time, like get things triggered and just like leave it there. Um, This is a weird example to me of people not seeming to follow their obvious self-interest. Right. And I, I mean, I think the sort of the flat checks is like, it's such a good idea. Like, just give the money to everybody, regardless of income, give it in equal amounts, regardless of whether you're an adult or a child or a, a non-minor dependent, instead of having this weird distinction. And, you know, I don't know, reasonable people can disagree about what the objective trigger is, but build something in, right? Such that you say, look, if I'm wrong and the economic situation is way worse, put the money out. And if you're worried about uh, interest rates, like you can have an interest rate trigger in too and say like, if unemployment is above such and such and interest rates are below such and such, everybody gets the money. Uh, But if the deficit is a bigger problem than we thought or the economy is better than I thought, then they don't. Like it's a... There's a lot, you know, you can argue about, about like exactly how big should the checks be? Exactly what should the triggers be? But the idea that you see in Congress that it's both like, well, we can come back and fix that later if we need to, but also we're going on recess until May. And also when we agree that we need to expand the small business lending program, we're going to have gridlock anyway, because we have a disagreement about hospital funding. Like that's the reality of Congress, you know, it's like, 
oftentimes they cannot, in fact, act in a timely manner. And there are always reasons for that. Like you can be like, ah, oh, Congress or oh, these politicians, they all suck. Uh, but there's real reasons gridlock keeps happening. So when you have a moment of agreement, it's really good to build automaticity into it. The other thing that's great about automaticity is it helps you avoid these administrative problems that we're seeing, right? When If you get people together and you're like, okay, you have 48 hours to design a brand new program from scratch, like that's really, that's really freaking hard. Like even when smart, well-meaning people work at it, like it's just challenging. And so making something that you set it up once and use it forever is so much smarter than like waiting for crises and trying to come up with solutions on the fly. I think that is all correct. I think it's a good place to end. All right. Let's let's do better next time, America, United States Congress. Um, you know, we're out there um, trying our best. Uh, if you've got any more great ideas for automatic stuff, love to get an email, uh, weeds at vox.com. Uh, Check us out in the Facebook group. Always great discussions there. Um, Thanks, Ezra. Thanks to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. And the Weeds will be back on Tuesday.